You're listening to the sermon audio from Redemption Church. Redemption Church exists to exalt Christ, edify the saints, and evangelize the world for the glory of God. For more information on Redemption Church, just go to redemption.church. We invite you to turn to Ephesians chapter 4. Our focal text today is going to be verses 7 through 12, but I'm going to read, again, to give us some context. I'm going to start in chapter 4, verse 1, and read through verse 16 to give us the context of this passage. So let's start Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean? But that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the ways and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So at the start of Ephesians 4, if you remember back when we were looking at the opening of this chapter, we talked about how Ephesians 4 marks a significant change in this book, a structural change. Because here in Ephesians 4, Paul moves from the doctrinal foundations at the start of the the book, the first three chapters, and now he's moving to the implications of that gospel, particularly upon the church. He's moving from what founds the church, how the church is formed and comes into existence, namely through the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, and now he's talking about what that means and how do we walk in a manner worthy in light of the gospel that we've been given. And so now in Ephesians 4, we are turning to the sort of day-by-day ordinary rhythms of what life together in the local church ought to be. 
Because the same gospel that we have heard and that we have received, the same gospel that has saved us, the same gospel that has brought us as adopted children into God's family, it is this gospel that guides us and how we live day by day together in the local church. And so Paul, in the opening of Ephesians 4, is remarkably concerned that we walk in a manner worthy that's consistent with the gospel that we've been created out of, and he is insistent that the church is the place that grows, that is built up, that becomes more mature, that the workmanship of Christ that is begun by our repentance and faith in him, that we are continuing to be shaped more like Christ, that we're being built up into maturity. But how do we do that? How is the church built up? How do we make the church grow? Those are important questions. I have a hunch if you took a sample of pastors from all sorts of different denominations, and if you got them around a table, and you had them workshop some ideas of how do we build the church, how do we grow the church, you might get all sorts of recommendations, don't you? You might need to hire a church growth consultant. I was uh, with a group of pastors recently, whom I'll leave nameless, and we were talking about some ministry opportunity in the city, and one of the pastors kept referring to the need to speak to his consultant. He's got a consultant on retainer. He wants to make sure that the consultant's involved as if, as if the consultant was the authority and how to build the church, and we've got to look to him. And my impulse is, well, we, we've got the Bible. Why don't we look at that? That might be a, a good idea. But they might say all sorts of things. We need a consultant who can know the field, know the market, know how we can um, position our church for success. Or, or maybe you need to build an impressive children's ministry, maybe a really cool facility for the children, maybe a really cool playground at back where the, the children can play. Or, or maybe you need a, a worship band that really rocks, right, that, that, that blows the, the house down, that impresses people with their musical skill. Um, obviously, that's not a, a struggle for us, right, Kyle? Um, and so, crown him with many crowns, right? Praise God that he uses us, right? So they might say you need to build an impressive facility, right? We don't have one of those either, do we? Uh, we, we don't have a facility. Uh, that, that's not going to draw a crowd. And they might say, well, maybe you need a, a charming and charismatic pastor, perhaps one with hair. Maybe that would help a little bit, right? These are the things, right? This is the cocktail, the recipe by which you insert these things and poof, hey, you got a, a building, growing church. But in desperation, these gurus tend to try to find a way to manufacture building up the church, don't they? If we can come up with the right innovations, then we can do it. And, and all that, that whole impulse is really rooted in some very false and unbiblical assumptions, isn't it? First wrong assumption is that we think that the building up of the church rests on our ability rather than God's ability to do the work, all right? So if I can come up with my own way, if I can make it happen, if I can look to growing churches and copy it, then boom, I've got the recipe for church growth. Who needs God? And then secondly, and perhaps most devastatingly, is those who idolize growth and building up the church and do so through man-made methods neglect and ignore the plan that God has so clearly established for just how he has said he will build up the church. Because we don't need gurus. We don't need experts. We don't need consultants. We've got the written word of God. And here in Ephesians chapter 4, God lays out for us through the words of the Apostle Paul exactly how his church will be built up. 
how does God build his church? It's the same way he formed the church. It is through his word, through his word. And God does the ministry of the word by gifting the church with leaders who can equip the members of the church with the word so that they can go and do the ministry of the word among one another and in the community. So as we look at this text together, we're going to first see how God is the generous God, how he is the giver of the gifts. Secondly, we will observe who are the equippers of the saints. And then thirdly, we will try to understand something of the ministry of the saints themselves. So let's first think through the giver of gifts. Who is that? Well, that's an easy answer. It's the Lord Jesus Christ, right? He is the one who gives gifts. Look at the start of chapter four, right? Paul urges the church, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. We walk together with others with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit of the bond and peace. So Paul wants the church united because he knows a united church is one that's being built up in maturity. And even though we are united as one, God is not designed us all the same, has he? It's part of God's good design for the church. Look at verse seven. Look at what Paul says. We're united. We're all in Christ. God is one. We are one in the gospel. But he says in verse 7, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Grace in this verse doesn't refer to saving grace, but to the gifts of grace that God gives to individual believers so that they might engage in the building up of the church. Now, the Greek word for, for grace is charis, and that's where we get the word charismatic from. And when used in the context of, of the church, when we talk about the charisma, the gifts, the grace gifts, we're talking about the spiritual gifts that God gives his people. But notice what Paul says. He says, this grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. That's important. Spiritual gifts have a source. They have a provider, and his name is Jesus, who is the head of the church. And so Paul helps us learn an important reality when we think about our own spiritual gifts, the spiritual gifts that you have and that I have. Let me just highlight two realities here that I think are important for us as we think about them. First, Jesus gives gifts in different measures to different individuals. Different measurements and different individuals. While every Christian has been gifted in some way to be of service to this body, sometimes the Lord will choose to abundantly bless a brother or sister with spiritual gifts, both in the quantity of the gifts they possess and in the potency of those gifts they possess. I think we can see this most evidently with the public ministry of teaching. So Jesus has blessed all of his churches with many pastors and teachers who fill the pulpit every single Sunday. And some men, though, seem especially gifted for the work. And so even pastors can find themselves uh, easily insecure about their gifting because, man, I've been blessed in a lesser measure than another pastor. I was over at New Hope yesterday afternoon at their vacation Bible school, and I was 
finishing up there, just spending some time with the saints while our kids were running around and, and learning about the scriptures. And, uh, and I was getting ready to leave, and I told Tommy Sullivan there, I said, I might as well go home and get started on my sermon for tomorrow. Jokingly. Uh, and so as I was talking to Tommy, and I, I said, you know, Charles Spurgeon used to do that exact same thing. He would have people at his house, he'd fellowship and eat meals, and then you know, around 9, 10 o'clock at night, he said, all right, about time to start on the sermon for tomorrow morning. <laughs> and Charles Spurgeon would get up and preach a way better sermon than I could ever preach, right? And then Charles Spurgeon was one who was extraordinarily gifted in the ministry of the Word. And so God gives different measurements, different potencies of gifts to be used for the building up of his church. And so because of this, because God is the one who gives the gifts, all of us should have contentment with the measure of the gift that we have received. Right? This is God who gifts, and we should be content with the measure that Christ has given you and me. And so we have to guard our hearts against envy of those who are more gifted than us. And we should be thankful to God that he chooses to bless certain individuals with a greater measurement of the gift than us. And at the same time, we should strive to be as faithful as we can in the exercise of the gifts that God has indeed given us. So we should work hard in sharpening our gifting and growing in our gifting. Paul reminds Timothy, Fan into flame the gift of God that you have received, and we should do the same. We should strive to use our gifts in the best way that we can, even as we are content in our ability to serve the church. I can remember uh, back when I was 19, some of those early sermons I preached. In fact, I have some recordings of those sermons, and the only way that you'll get access to them is by my death, and perhaps not even then, right? Right? <laughs> But even back then, I remember preaching at Pinecrest Baptist Church in Charleston, South Carolina. I was a youth minister, and I got a couple opportunities to, to preach on Sunday mornings. And even back then, those saints saw in me the raw, unrefined gifting to teach, and they encouraged me to the work. Pastoral ministry wasn't even on my radar, but the encouragement of those saints made me sense and see how the Lord had equipped me for service to his people. And so since then, I've sought some training Thought some preparation. I've gotten lots of practice that, since then. And as my wife regularly reminds me, I'm a bre much better preacher today than I was just last year, by God's grace. So, so we have to be content with the gifting that God has given us according to the measure Christ has given you. Use it faithfully, fan it into flame, but grow in that same gifting and be content in that measurement. But there's a second thing here. Spiritual gifts derive from Jesus's own gift, Paul says. Therefore, Christ gets all the glory for the way spiritual gifts are being used for the building up of the body. If all the gifts have their source in Jesus, then who are we to take credit for how God uses our gifts, right? We should not boast if Christ has given us an increased measure of giftedness over somebody else. The most gifted teacher or leader or servant or evangelist or giver, we must never use our spiritual gifts as a cause for boasting and self-exaltation. You see, this is the Corinthian error. Go back and read 1 Corinthians. This is the mistake they were making. And that's an error that continues to be made all throughout the church of the Lord Jesus Christ today. Because if you are using your spiritual gifts to puff you up, to make you look good, to exalt yourself over others, then you are actually using those gifts in the exact opposite way that Jesus intends you to use them. They were given, not for you, they were given for his people, 
so that they might grow and be mature in Christ. God gifts the members of his church to serve and build up others. And so anytime we receive the benefit of another's ministry in this body, we should simply thank God. He's the one who receives that. He's the one that causes that benefit to come. Don't marvel at the one serving. Marvel at God who gives according to the measure of Christ's gift. And so as Paul continues in verses 8 through 10 here, he cites Psalm 68 to demonstrate that the ascended Christ is the one who gives gifts. Now, in Psalm 68, verse 18, which is where this passage comes from, the divine victor described in the psalm is one who is receiving gifts among men. And now Paul actually adapts this in Ephesians, changing the line from receiving gifts to giving gifts. Perhaps Paul's not making a direct quotation here. Maybe he's making allusion, or perhaps Paul's just borrowing from the Aramaic translation of the Old Testament, which translates that verse as giving gifts. But whatever the case, Paul's point is pretty clear. Paul is borrowing and adapting the language and themes of Psalm 68, and he applies them to Jesus's incarnation and his ascension. So Paul, in a parenthetical thought, you can see how in verse 9 through 10, if you've got the ESV, it kind of puts parentheses around that section. Uh, You can see how he's taking that language of Psalm 68, and he's making an important point. He describes Jesus's incarnation as Jesus descending into the lower regions, the earth. Jesus came down, he became one of us, and that he who descended in humility in his incarnation has now been risen to victory, ascending far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. So Paul is referencing here Christ as the victor. Christ is the conqueror. Christ is the king. Christ is the ascended glory of God. And so this is a theme that goes all the way back to Ephesians chapter 1, when we talked about how Christ was raised from the dead and is now seated at the right hand of God. But don't let the, the intricacies of Paul's digression here distract you from his main point. Why does he bring up Psalm 68 in the first place? Christ is the victor who has led his people out of captivity. And now Jesus, as the conquered king, conquering king, now he shares with his people the spoils of victory. That's Paul's point. That the ascended Christ who has conquered and has ascended into the heavens, he has not left us in poverty. Friend, you might not have much in this life. You might not be incredibly gifted, might not have much money, might not have much of anything, but the Lord Jesus has freed us from the captivity of sin. Jesus descended into this world. He took on human flesh so that he could die in our place. And by the value of his blameless blood that was spilt on Calvary's hill, he redeemed the church of God. And if you today would repent of your sins and put your faith in Jesus Christ, you will be forgiven of your sins and your captivity to sin and death will be over. He will liberate you. But just as Jesus descended into the earth, so did Jesus descend to the grave. But by the power of God, he who descended also ascended, right? He rose and triumphed over the grave, rising on the third day in resurrected glory. And now Jesus is alive and he sits at the Father's right hand. He is ruling and reigning over the cosmos now and Jesus is Lord of all. So friend, if you would, 
you would come to Jesus by faith, you will not only share in the forgiveness of sins that he procures, but you will share in his victorious triumph. And behold, this king will come again soon. But Paul stresses this point of Christ's incarnation and ascension because he wants us to see that as as those who are his people, those who are Christian, those who are his church, he has not left us as paupers. No, the victory we share in Christ is not just a future reality that we'll get to experience in the new heavens and new earth, but it is a present one. And until Jesus comes again, descending from the clouds, he has given gifts to his church, all sorts of spiritual gifts to empower us for the work of ministry. Paul's point is that Christ has given us the spoils of his victory as he blesses the church with spiritual power. We have Jesus's empowerment. He is giving gifts to his people so that the church might grow and be built up in love. And for the building up of his church, Jesus has graciously given those who minister the word of God to us. That's the the focal point that Paul has in mind as he moves into verse 11. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, and the shepherd teachers. By God's grace, he has provided those who are equipped and empowered by his spirit to equip the saints with the word of God for the ministry. Namely, Paul has in his crosshairs here how Christ blesses his church, how he gives to his church through those who minister the word of God to the church. That leads, secondly, to the equippers of the saints. And who are those? Well, they are teachers, teachers of the word of God. Paul lists in verse 11 four different gifts, each referring to aspects of the teaching ministry. You have apostles, you have prophets, you have evangelists, and then fourthly, you have shepherd teacher. So it's clear in the original language that Paul intends shepherd and teacher to go together as they share the same article. So Paul has kind of one position in mind as he mentions the shepherd teacher, the pastor, the elder. So we have already seen the phrase, the apostles and prophets. If you've been with us throughout this Ephesians series, you'll remember that Paul has already used that phrase, the apostles and prophets. He mentioned it earlier in Ephesians as those who played a foundational role for the starting of the church. Go back to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20. So let's talk about each one of these and go into a little bit more detail. Apostle was a unique office in the early church. And its term can be a little bit confusing to us, not only because people still refer to themselves as apostles to this day, but also in the New Testament, the word apostle is used in different ways. And so we have to parse out what the word means in the particular context we find it. So apostle simply means one who is sent. That's its basic meaning, one who is sent. The word apostle became the title for the twelve whom Jesus trained for ministry, those disciples. Paul became an apostle in this sort of office sort of way because he was one uniquely called by Jesus on the road to Damascus, and he saw the risen Christ. And so the apostles in the first century church were Jesus's authorized representatives to establish the church and to give it sound doctrine after his ascension to heaven. But the word apostle in the New Testament can be used in this way to refer to the office of apostle. But the word apostle can also be used as an adjective to describe one who is sent out by the church for a specific task or mission. 
So for example, if you go to Philippians chapter 2, verse 25, Paul uses the word apostle in that latter sense. He talks about Epaphroditus to the Philippians. He says, I thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger or apostle and minister to my need. So Paul uses apostle not in the office way there. He's using it to describe Epaphroditus as one who was a messenger, one who was sent out from the church of Philippi to aid him and to help him. So the office of apostle, as we think about that capital A apostle, it ended in the first century after the death of those first apostles. The authority of an apostle is not passed down from one generation to the next, as it's taught in the Catholic Church through the vicar of Christ, who is the papacy, the pope. That's that's not what the scriptures teach. Nor should the title apostle be used like it is in many charismatic groups. I think that's misguided. And I think it confuses the unique authority that the first century apostles had in establishing the sound doctrine of the church. Now let's talk about who the prophets are. We've got apostles, we've got prophets. Who are these guys? Well, the prophets also seem to serve a unique function in the first century church as those who came alongside the apostles and supported the ministry of the apostles through teaching. For example, you have Agabus that shows up in the book of Acts, along with the prophets who come down from Jerusalem to Antioch in Acts 11. We see that the church of Antioch had its own prophets and teachers in Acts 13. So whatever the nature of New Testament prophecy, which is a debated topic, Paul in 1 Corinthians helps us see what the purpose of prophets were in the New Testament. So in 1 Corinthians 4.13, he indicates that prophets were for the upbuilding and encouragement and consolation, he says, of God's people. So God gave the church apostles and prophets for her foundational years. Remember Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20, the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. So therefore, the gifts of apostle and prophets, this office ended in the first century once their foundational teachings were given and recorded in the New Testament. In other words, because we now have the Bible, because we have the New Testament, their foundational task of establishing Christian doctrine and teaching is over. The work of the apostles and prophets is completed. They're no longer needed. As Paul would say in 1 Corinthians 13, the partial has passed away now that the perfect word of God is recorded for us. So the teaching ministry of the apostles and prophets has concluded, in a sense, as now their words are recorded in Scripture, the inerrant Word of God, but yet their ministry continues. And how does it continue? Well, it continues as their teaching, the teaching of the apostles and prophets, the New Testament, as it's continued to be expounded and taught by those last two groups, the evangelists and the pastor-teachers. So Bible commentator F.F. Bruce, he put it this way, and I think he's right. He said, the apostles, as an order of the ministry of the church, were not perpetuated beyond the apostolic age, but the various functions they discharged did not lapse with their departure, but continued to be formed to be performed by others, notably the evangelists and pastors and teachers. So the authoritative teaching of the apostles and prophets is recorded in the New Testament, and that alone is the source of authority for the church and for the Christian life. 
sola scriptura, the Bible alone. Its teaching is sufficient for maturing and growing the church. And who are those who instruct the word of God to God's people? That work, that ministry of the apostles and prophets recorded in the New Testament, it is continued on by the evangelists and the pastor teacher. Uh, pastor Kent Hughes, I think, gives a great analogy for these two tasks. He says the evangelists are the obstetricians of the church, and the pastor teachers are the pediatricians of the church. I think that gets exactly right what, what Paul's intending here. While we are all called to do evangelism, praise God that there are those uniquely gifted in the work of evangelism, those who labor and those who are quite skilled at taking the good news of the gospel and explaining it to those who have not heard it and do not understand it. And the Lord, by his grace, converts sinners as they share the gospel with others. New Christians are born into the kingdom as, as these evangelists labor in the preaching of the gospel to the lost. Evangelists are a gift to the church. They are a gift to the church. They are indeed the midwives of the church, bringing new babies, new Christian babies into the kingdom. And the pastor teacher, the, the office of elder, that becomes formalized at the end of the New Testament era as that office of elder in the pastoral epistles, they are the pediatricians of the church. And what does a pediatrician do? Well, a pediatrician ensures that those young Christian babies are growing into maturity, that they're developing properly. They watch over them for the long haul, ensuring that they transition from one state of development to the next and to maturity. The word pastor simply means shepherd. And a pastor is one who tenderly nurtures the church with the ministry of the word, feeding them, caring for them, watching over them so that they can grow into maturity. Now notice these four positions that Paul talks about here, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastor, teacher, what do they all have in common? Well, they all have in common the ministry of the word of God. They are teachers. The apostles and prophets establish the content of Christian teaching, and the evangelists and pastor teachers propagate that teaching as they nurture the church with the word of God. So with the ministry and the apostles and the prophets concluded and preserved in the New Testament scriptures, the evangelists and pastor teachers have continued their work over the last 2,000 years to ensure that the faith once for all delivered keeps being delivered to each succeeding generation. Now, understanding this, it's a little technical, but I think it's absolutely paramount if we want to understand how does God build his church? How does the church grow? And this is an important point. As a pastor, I have no authority to establish Christian doctrine. Right? I have no authority to alter or modify what the scripture says. I have no right to say, you know what? And I'm reading the apostle Paul and no, I think he's wrong here. I think he's mistaken. I think he made an error. I think he's a little out of touch. We've kind of moved beyond this. Let me, let me change what Paul says here, and then I'm going to teach that to the church. Now, if I pulled that maneuver, I hope you'd fire me, as you should, right? And nor do I have the right to say, you know what, Jesus, you know, he's a good guy, but if you actually read what Jesus says, he's a little brash at times. You know, and sometimes he he talks about hell with such frequency. You know, the modern world would be offended by that. So let me just, let me just teach something else in order to reach more people. I hope you fire me for that too. What, what the church needs from pastors is not their innovation. 
which always leads to a deviation from the biblical text. Nor does the church need pastors and teachers to market and adjust the message of the scriptures to make it more palatable, which always involves twisting, if not an outright denial of the biblical text. No, what the church needs today, the way God builds his church, is through the simple, clear, unapologetic, and authoritative preaching of the Bible. That's how God builds his church. And we need more pastors who can speak like Paul did to the Ephesians when, when he left them from Miletus. He said, therefore, I, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. You see, the whole Bible needs to be proclaimed to all of God's people. And because the Bible is the ultimate authority, because it is the written word of God, it means that you and I, as every Christians, we should read like the Bereans in the book of Acts. We should be checking our Bibles. Anytime we hear a teacher get up there or a preacher, we should ensure that what they're saying is biblical. False teachers are those who, with their slick hair and flashing smiles, trick people by their charisma to believe unbiblical truths. Well, that's a bit of an oxymoron, isn't it? Unbiblical teaching, perhaps, right? It's not truth. It's error. But, but the teaching ministry, though, rightly done under the authority and the sufficiency of Scripture, Paul says this is a gift for the church. This is a blessing for the church. It's a gift of Jesus to the church. As Paul makes the connection here, he says the teaching of the Bible, the teaching of the word, those who labor in that ministry, this is the spoil of Christ's victory for his people. So the sit under the ministry of the word is a blessing from Jesus himself. It matures you. It grows you. It sustains your faith till the end. It is the means by which we all need to continue to grow in Christ, to walk together in a manner worthy of the gospel. And the aim of the teaching ministry in the church, this word-centered ministry, becomes clear in verse 12. What is the aim? What are the evangelists and the pastors, teachers, what are they aiming to do as they continue on this ministry of the word? They teach, the set text says, look at verse 12, to equip the saints for the work of ministry to equip the saints, the members of the church, right, for the work of ministry. This text is so important. We want to understand rightly what a local church is because many think the local church is structured like some sort of pyramid, right, with the pastor sitting at top, right, and, and, and the pastor's up there and everybody else is subordinate underneath the pastor. And then others think of the church as some sort of like local co-op where the saints pulled together their financial resources to hire staff and pastors to do all the ministry for them. But, but the pastor can't do all the ministry. That's not the way God designed it. They can't do it all. And the, and the church can't simply just hire those to do ministry for them. No, the ministry of the word is done by all of God's people. The pastors are there simply to equip and to train and to teach and to instruct the saints so that they can go and continue that ministry as well in their life together and in their evangelism in their community. I think John Stott is right. He says the New Testament envisions not a single pastor with a docile flock, but a plural oversight and an every member ministry. 
And that's exactly what we've tried to do here at Redemption Church, that the elders instruct and teach the word of God to you, training every member of this church to do the work of ministry, to equip you for that task. So every Sunday, as the elders come up to lead you in worship, that's our aim. Our aim is to worship the Lord Jesus and to equip you to do the work of ministry. We are training you. You are here at the spiritual gym of the church to be trained, to grow, to mature, so that you can be faithful in using the spiritual gifts that Christ has given you in service to Jesus. So every time an elder sits down with you privately to pray for you, to share scripture with you, to give you counsel, what are we doing? We're seeking to equip you with the word of God so that you can be about the ministry of God in this church and in our community. We are training you for the purpose of growth in godliness. We are training you to share the gospel with others. We are training you to live a holy life in Christ Jesus. And if this is the way God has designed it, as Paul teaches us here, then there's two really important implications for you. One is you must submit to and gladly receive this ministry as a gift from God. And I certainly hope you do, right? That you have to submit to this. I want to be taught. I come attentive, ready to hear God's word. I know that those who labor in the teaching ministry in this church do so for my spiritual good. And these are, are the ones whom God will use to build me up and, and to make me more like Christ. So I want to sit and I want to receive it. I want to submit to it gladly as a gift from Jesus. And then a second implication here is that you must be a doer of the word, not just a hearer only. <laughs> the, the point of teaching in the church is not to puff you up with knowledge, to make you more informed for the sake of blowing up your brain a little bit. No, there, there's an action aim to what the teaching ministry is intending to do. We want to teach you and instruct you and equip you so that you can go do something with that word and share it with others, minister to others, help others grow, share the gospel with your neighbors. That is why. So we have to submit and receive this ministry, and then we need to be doers of the word as we hear it. So if the church is the body of Christ, and it is, what, what part of the body do you think you would assign the elders, the pastor teachers of the church? Well, the Bible doesn't give us any direct comparisons, but if we use our sanctified imagination a little bit, I think our instincts would probably be to give the elders some sort of public-facing role in the church. Maybe they're the face, right? Or maybe they're the hands, or maybe they're the tongue because they do all the teaching, or maybe they're the spine because they need to have a good theological backbone or something like that. But I, I, you know, as I think about it, I think the best metaphor for the role of pastors, teachers, is the digestive system. Not very glamorous little smelly, but very important, right? We are in charge of making sure that the body of Christ intakes and digests the pure word of God. And that means we are called to expel from the body those poisonous and toxic teaching that the church should not digest. But our job as elders is to equip you to equip you, just to, to give the nutrition of the word of God to all the members of the body so that you as the church can go and be about this ministry of the word in your lives together, that you might grow and mature in your service to the Lord. You are the hands and the feet of the body. We are the esophagus and the stomach and the small intestines. We are here to ensure that you have all the resources you need to obey Christ and to fulfill the great commission. And we want to make sure that you are well-nourished 
with the word of God so that you can walk in a manner worthy of Christ. And that leads thirdly to the ministry of the saints. What are you supposed to be doing? Right? You are building up the body of Christ in verse 12. And here I can only introduce what will come next week. Paul has, in Ephesians 4, he's sort of laying up a chain of dominoes throughout the text. Christ gives gifts to the church, and those gifts are called teachers. The teachers then equip the saints for the work of ministry, and then every member in the church then works together to build up the body of Christ. That's the, the purpose. That's your purpose in the church is to build up one another in Christ. In our mission statement, we, we, we phrase it this way. We exist to exalt Christ, edify the saints, and evangelize the world for the glory of God. And what's that middle E word there, edify the saints? Edify is simply another word for building up. We want to help each other grow, to be discipled. And so we will talk much more about how to do that. How do you edify others in this body? We'll talk about that next time. But let's look briefly at how Paul continues uh, as we pick up in verse 12. So look at Ephesians 4, verse 12. What does Paul say? So the pastor's teachers, right, they're to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, but human by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is is equipped when each part is working properly makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. There's, there's your marching orders of how Christ builds his church. As a member of this church, you have a responsibility to build up others in this congregation. The spiritual growth of those around you is your responsibility. It's all of our responsibility. The maturity of others is your goal. The elders teach you and feed you the word of God so that you can accomplish this purpose. So without a Christ who gives gifts, who's generous to us, we would have no teachers. And without teachers, then the church would not be fed and strengthened by the word of God. It would be weak and frail. And without members in the church to receive that word and to do that word, there is no one to actually do the work of building up the body of Christ. But notice the key theme throughout Paul's logic here. It is the teaching ministry. It is the word of God that builds up the church. That the teaching of the word of God in a local congregation should so reverberate as it's heralded that it bounces around throughout the entire congregation. As you are trained in the word of God, you are trained and equipped to give that word of God to one another and to the lost. And so the Holy Spirit is the one who uses the word of God ricocheting around the church as we minister it to one another to actually build up the church in maturity. Now, for me personally, this passage has been absolutely foundational for my philosophy of ministry. I came of age in the church at a time where the, the church growth movement with all its gurus were at its peak, where every church pioneered new methods, new ideas, uh, a strategy in a box sort of way to, to get the church to grow and to grow quickly. And there's this sort of like desperate pragmatism of just, hey, what does this church do? And let me just copy and paste that here and, and boom, I'll, I'll make something happen. And 
when the seeker-sensitive movement took off and when the megachurches started popping up all over the country, everyone sort of changed their methods, right? Let's go from stuffy suits and sanctuaries and let's go to Hawaiian shirts and, and rock theater auditoriums. That'll do it. And churches began to look a lot more like shopping malls that catered to attract Christian consumers. And so I found in my young heart in those early years that there was something winsome and attractive about that, those methods. But as I studied the scriptures and I began to see the fault of that thinking, I began to see that the Bible doesn't teach any of that stuff. The Bible says, gives a very clear prescription for church health and church growth. And it's the preached word of God. The word of God is what does it. As one of my seminary professors put it and has stuck with me all these years, he always admonished us, students, let the word do the work. Let the word do the work. And it is that, the authority and sufficiency of the Bible that undergirds the ministry philosophy of Redemption Church. That if our church is built on gimmicks, it will fade and it will fail and it will fall. If our church is built on personality, it will fade, it will fail, it will fall. And if our church is built on having a really nice facility that attracts people to come to it, it will fade, it will fail, it will fall. The church must be built on the word of God. And if a church is built upon the authority and sufficiency of scripture, take heart, the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Those in darkness, those who do not know the good news of the gospel, they're going to hear it as the church proclaims it and teaches it. And the Holy Spirit will begin to use that word of God to change people's hearts and change people's lives. And so you, church, you are the saints who are being equipped with the, word, with the word of God to train and disciple one another. And so as the word of God is preached from this pulpit and through all the facets of teaching ministry here at Redemption Church, it goes into your life. And as that word spreads from you to others, God builds his church. It's not a complicated plan. It's not a fancy plan. It's not the sort of plan that's going to earn you a bestseller for church leadership books. But if you want to know our strategic plan as a church, it's that. That's all we have as elders, right? The simple, plain, ordinary ministry of the word. But oh, church, that is more than enough. More than enough. The ministry of the word is given to us by Christ to equip us for ministry. And so that's what we're going to do. Whether we're here or whether we're at New Hope or who knows where we'll be, right? We, we will keep ministering the word. We will trust that the Holy Spirit will do what he's promised, that he will take that word and it'll be like that two-edged sword, that it'll pierce us to our hearts and to our souls. And we believe, and I hope you do as well, that the word of God is living and active and that God will use it to build his church and that God has given us this ministry of the word and that we might give it to one another in discipleship and evangelism. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we ask that you would indeed build your church through the faithful preaching and teaching of your word. Oh, Holy Spirit, use it to mature us, to grow us, to make us more like you. Father, we ask that you might do this. Our generous God, for your glory and for the good of your people, we pray. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.